Look, payday's awesome, but running payroll, calculating taxes and deductions, staying compliant, that's not easy. Unless, of course, you have Gusto. Gusto is a simple online payroll and benefits tool built for small businesses like yours. Gusto gets your team paid while automatically filing your payroll taxes. Plus, you can offer benefits like 401k, health insurance, and workers' comp, and it makes onboarding new employees a breeze. We love it so much, we really do use it ourselves, and we have four years, and I personally recommend you give it a try, no matter how small your business is. And to sweeten the deal, just for listening today, you also get three months free. Go to gusto.com slash boss. that's gusto.com slash being boss. Welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creatives, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want to take control of their work and live life on their own terms. I'm your host, Emily Thompson, and today I'm joined by Lee Bardugo, best-selling author of Ninth House and the Shadow and Bone Trilogy, to talk about capturing inspiration, cultivating a creative process, and letting your work grow beyond you. You can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the show and share us with a friend. Sometimes seeing someone else's path to success helps us clearly map out our own. It's why we all like business podcasts, right? Well, I'm here to share a show for you to check out the Female Startup Club podcast, an amazing resource that shares insights and learnings from the world's most successful female founders, entrepreneurs, and women in business. In a recent episode, I loved hearing about how Michelle Grant, the founder of Lively, the lingerie and swimwear brand built and sold her company for $105 million in just three years. Total boss move. So if you're looking for a new pod to inspire your next steps, listen to the Female Startup Club podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Lee Bardugo is a New York Times bestselling author of Ninth House and the creator of the Grishaverse, which spans the Shadow and Bone trilogy, now a Netflix original series, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, the Language of Thorns, and the Lives of Saints with more to come. Her short stories can be found in multiple anthologies, including the best American science fiction and fantasy. She lives in Los Angeles. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer for this episode. The sound quality at some parts of this interview is not the best because sometimes the internet connection just doesn't care that you're in the middle of a really juicy interview, but the content here is golden. So give us some grace and listen closely to gain some really good nuggets. Welcome Lee to being boss. I'm so glad to have you here. Happy to be here. This is going to be such a great conversation. I have been sort of planning for and thinking about this episode for a couple of weeks. And I'm excited to sort of go in maybe a different direction with you. I also say I'm total fan of your work. Thank you. Extremely excited just to be holding this space with you. Um, And as both a reader of your work, but also as a boss, as a creative business person, I'm really excited to dive into how it is that you are able to be such a prolific and at the same time, best-selling author who has work that is enjoyed by so many. I'm excited to dive in with you on your creative process and specifically, obviously, your writing process. But first, I would love as much of an intro as you can give us. I would love for you to share with us your author journey. How did you get to where you are today? I mean, 
circuitously is what I would say. Um, <laughs> I, so when you talk to a lot of um, authors and young adults, a lot of them publish their books um, even before they graduated from college um, or in their 20s. And I am not one of those stories. I wanted to be a writer from the time I was very young, but I had no idea how to write a book. Uh, so I would get ideas and I would uh, embark on them with a lot of enthusiasm and I would get a couple of chapters in and then I would stop because I had no idea where to go. I didn't know what my process was. I didn't know how a book was built. Um, and I had, I think culture does a real <laughs> number on us in terms of understanding what it is to be a creative person or engage with um, a big creative work as opposed to something that can be broken up into teeny tiny pieces. Although I guess that is really what the approach of writing by outline is. Um, I just didn't know what I was doing. And so I had a lot of jobs. I had rent to pay and loans to pay off. And I reached a point in my 30s where I thought, maybe I'm just not meant to do this. I maybe I know there are a lot of people who want to be writers who want to work in creative fields. And maybe I'm somebody who's going to have had a dream and that's all it will be. And then um, I had a talk with a friend of mine while on the phone with her, was having a cry. <laughs> I remember I was making the bed and she said, you know, you should, you know, you want to be a writer. I was working as a makeup and special effects artist at the time. She said, you know, you, I know you want to be a writer. Why are you wasting your time doing other things? Why don't you apply to the MFA? And I, I thought, I don't actually want to go to school. I want to write a book. And the only reason I would go into graduate school is to learn to write a book. So what if I, what if I make a promise to myself that I'm going to write a book before my next birthday, which would have been, I guess, my 35th or 36th birthday. I can't remember anymore now. And uh, I got off the phone and I, I outlined a book for the first time. I, I outlined two screenwriting format, three act structure. It was very rough. It had lots of uh, questions and blank spaces in it, but that's what I did. And six months later, I had a book. What do you think it was about that phone call, about that one outside of probably, I would imagine, dozens of conversations that you may have had around this, but what was it about that one that made you think it's time? I have asked myself that a lot. And I think... Um, <laughs> I think I was sort of at the lowest of lows. You know, I was in a... Uh, not good relationship. I think it's fair to say that it was a very scary relationship. Um, my self-esteem had just been beaten into nothing. And uh, I was in a job I wasn't very good at. You know, like I was, I was a makeup and effects artist, but I wasn't very good at my job and it was exhausting and, um, and not particularly gratifying. And um, I think I had sort of hit this moment where I was like, okay, um, the tombstone's going to read had potential. Like I felt just very bleak about everything. I was in a deep, deep depression. And I think the thing that helped turn the key for me was I told myself I wasn't going to write a good book. I was going to write a bad book. It just had to be done. It didn't have to be original. It didn't have to be smart. It didn't have to be anything except finished. It needed a beginning, a middle, and an end. And once I had written a shitty book, then I would know I could write a book and I could write a good book. And that freed me from so much of these sort of visions of what I was supposed to be writing and who I was supposed to be and what kind of story I was supposed to be writing. And instead, I got to just 
right with pleasure and abandon. And when that voice in my head would speak up and say, this is garbage, everything you're doing is crap. Instead of saying, no, it's not, it's great, it's brilliant. I'd say, yeah, it's terrible. Good thing no one's ever going to see this. And I sort of played a trick on myself. Um, and I think that was what allowed me to get through that kind of vital first draft. And at the end of that draft, I thought, you know what, this isn't actually bad. There's some stuff in here I really like. And how about I go back and I revise this and make this into something better? And that was Shadow and Bone. Nice. I feel like I almost have to sit with that one for just like half a second. Because one of the things that I know holds so many creatives back is exactly what you like mind tricked your way around, (laughs) right? This idea of someone's going to judge me. What are they going to think? Is anyone going to buy it? Whatever it may be, it keeps them from actually just enjoying the process of creating, which really is why most of us are here. So I love hearing that you, that I guess this was the moment when you knew that that was what you had to do to make it happen and that it actually resulted in being something that everyone wanted to read and loved. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say everyone. And I think that's actually an important thing to say, which is that part of the deal you can make with yourself as an artist is no, everyone isn't going to like this. Some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to give you terrible reviews and yell about it at you on Twitter. And that is okay. That is a big part of being an artist or creating anything that goes out into the world for public judgment. But I think that, look, we we grow up with very weird ideas about what it is to be creative. When we go to see a movie or read a book about an artist or watch a television show where there's an artist or a musician or uh, a writer, we see it as this tiny fraction of what their process is like, right? We see them have some brilliant moment of inspiration or go through a breakup and then they sit down at the typewriter or they approach the canvas and in a flurry of activity, we have this montage of creation. And then at the end, there's a stack of pages, somebody types the end or they put the finishing flourish on the, on the painting and they lie down exhausted and they're done. And so we have no sense of what it is to grapple with the discomfort of something not being what you want it to be every day. We have no idea what the slog of that is and how creating is really the process of failing a little every day and then interspersed with these brief moments of feeling like you're a genius. And at the end of that, what you have is a messy, rough draft and that then needs to go through the process of revision, which we never see in any kind of creative endeavor because it would be so fucking boring. But we are left then with a real misconception about what it means to make art and to make art in a commercial way, right? So when we embark on this journey and when we begin to dig in and really try to produce a piece of work, we are met with the experience that does not line up with that. And it is very easy to think to yourself, well, my God, I'm doing this wrong. I'm on the wrong path. I, I'm not having this, these epic moments of inspiration. This is difficult and prickly and challenging. And one of the things I think is so important for creative people to know is when you run into those days, when you feel like you're failing, what you're actually getting is not a sign that says stop. You're getting a sign that's like, keep going. Because the reason it feels that way is because you are attempting to do something bigger and better and more interesting, more challenging than you've ever done before. So of course it's going to feel uncomfortable. Amen. All over that. (laughs) All (laughs) over. Okay. So you have 
done the mind tricks that you used to do, <laughs> right? To get yourself right. into this first draft. Um, did you write it by that next birthday? I, I think I was a few months late, but I did get there. <laughs> I think I, I don't think I made my 35th birthday, but I think it was a few months after that. I was done with that first draft. Wonderful. And then, and then what happened? So you get this first draft of this book that you have sworn to yourself that you will complete and you're compelled to do something with it. What does that look like? Well, the first step of that was showing it to, first I was revising it, right? So I have, I write what is called a zero draft or what I call a zero draft, which is the draft no one will ever see. And it's barely a draft. It's more like a very elaborate outline with a lot of missing pieces. Then I go in and I fill out what I know. So uh, that then becomes a workable first draft. And then that gets revised into a draft that I feel comfortable showing to someone. And I sent it to two of my friends. Um, neither are novelists, but one had been through the through an MFA program and who was working uh, as a journalist and screenwriter. The other um, is now an academic and a screenwriter. And it's Los Angeles. Everybody's a screenwriter. And, um, and I trusted both of them, which I think is incredibly vital. You need people who, who you trust to give you honest and useful feedback, um, but who also aren't going to bring their ego to the process. Um, and so I sent it to my friends, Michelle and Josh. And while they were reading the manuscript, I started researching agents and, uh, and trying to figure out uh, who, who I could approach and how you even do that. How do you write a pitch letter how do you <laughs> and a little bio and, and how that, all that's going to work. Um, I took a seminar on um, writing query letters and first pages. And, uh, and I also discovered that absolutely no one wanted what I had written. Um, I had no sense of what the market was. I thought fantasy was fantasy and young adult was young adult. And what I learned very quickly was that everybody was looking for paranormal fantasy or werewolves, vampires, steampunk, sci-fi. The one thing they didn't want was um, what I write, which is, or what I wrote at the time, which was epic fantasy or secondary world fantasy. And I'm so glad I didn't know that because I might not have attempted it. <laughs> and um, and because of that, it limited the number of agents who I could approach. And I saw a post from uh, Joanna Volpe on one of her, on a blog. And it said it was all about how much she loved Lord of the Rings and how she was looking for the secondary fantasy that was really going to make her heart sing. And I thought, why not? I'll give it a try. And I, she was one of the agents I queried. I queried money. And lucky for me, she was one of the ones that wanted uh, to see more. So, um, I sent her a full manuscript and I remember I was standing in line to, I had rented a Halloween costume that year and I was standing in line to return it. <laughs> and I got a call from her saying that she wanted to represent me. And uh, I was crying when I got up to the register and he was like, you okay? There? And I was like, this was really good Halloween. So uh, <laughs> it, it was, it was magic. It turned out to be, um, exactly the right person. And, uh, and she is still my agent to this day and over 10 years later. That's amazing. Okay. So whenever you did the outline for this first book, did you know it would be an epic? Like, did you know it would be multiple books or did it sort of flow into that? What did it look like to take the first outline and expand it into 
the universe that it now is. When I first wrote um, Shadow and Bone, I had my only goal was to finish that book. That's it. Okay. I wasn't thinking, oh, it's going to be a trilogy or it's going to be this or that. All I cared about was finishing a book because I'd never managed to do that before. About halfway through that process, somewhere after that zero draft, I thought this ending is not enough. It's not, this is, it isn't actually the end of the story. And so I started taking notes for what could be a second and third book in the trilogy. But I didn't know if I would sell that first one. So it was sort of a, if I get the chance, if this goes anywhere type of situation. Um, So no, I didn't. (laughs) I remember reading an interview with Brandon Sanderson or something, and he's basically had all like 36 books of the Cosmere mapped out since he was 17. And I'm just not that person. My brain does not, still to this day, does not think of the story in that way. And if you read the books in the Grishaverse, they happen in very constrained amounts of time. Um, They're not, you know, let us spend, you know, 20 years or 30 years with these characters. It's more, let's spend a few months or let's spend a couple of years. And then the story develops from there. So, no, I was not thinking of the grand plan for the Grishaverse at the time. Um, There was no Grishaverse. (laughs) There was just one book. And one girl's story, Alina's story. And that was the thing that I was sort of holding on to. When it comes to growing your business, integrating the right tools at the right time to help you get the job done can be tricky. But the HubSpot CRM platform is a tool that can take the headache out of scaling your business and it will continue to grow with you. But don't just take it from me. I understand the value of bosses sharing what's worked for them along their entrepreneurial journey. That's why today I'm bringing you the experience of a real boss using HubSpot to take her business to the next level. My name is Kim Dow, and I'm the owner and publisher of SAS Magazine, a Bean Boss podcast fan and HubSpot CRM customer. So for our business running a magazine, we have three very different lists. Each of those audiences have very different interests and different goals. HubSpot allows us to create segmented and targeted lists to ensure that we're communicating and marketing to each audience group very effectively. And using HubSpot has played a huge role in helping to increase our open and click rates and to ensure that our readers stay subscribed to our e-newsletters. We love all of the features of HubSpot and we've really been using it this past year to help grow our business. Throughout the holidays and into 2022, We'll be using HubSpot to set up more automation, such as chat flows and more list building tools. This will allow us to become more productive and more efficient in our time and our workflow. This is Kim Dow from SAS Magazine, and my HubSpot CRM platform helps my business stay connected. Learn more about how it can do the same for yours at HubSpot.com. That is such a super fascinating process to me. I definitely assumed you were planning the whole Grishaverse as you were writing. So high five for pulling some really good, um, really good, I guess, plot weaving (laughs) throughout the, throughout these books. Um, I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. I think, I think it's so fascinating to uh, hear stories where creatives such as yourself, like we all begin in these either one, a very windy path where you just land wherever it is that you're supposed to land, or we have these moments of reckoning where we have walked down a path where we, you know, finally realize that this really, 
really, really, really isn't it. And we course correct, usually quite dramatically, um, and that you were able to do that. And by doing so, opened yourself up to creating so many things along the way. So I appreciate you sharing that for sure. And I want to dive into, though, creative process, because you've shared a little bit of like what it looked like to create these works from a very like bird's eye view. But I would love the opportunity to dive in with you on what exactly it looks like for you to create in the way that you create. Um, So I think the most natural place to start is probably inspiration like where it is that you gather inspiration. So where do you gather it? And how do you capture inspiration to use later? Okay, so there are sort of two different kinds of ideas. There are ideas that arrive like lightning bolts. And there are ideas that need to, I'm going to mix up all my metaphors now, but need to sort of sit in the crock pot for a while. So we'll call them like the slow storm brewing. So uh, in terms of inspiration, that can really come from anywhere. It can come from podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love listening to historical podcasts, um, podcasts about language, podcasts about food. And, you know, I will pick up little ideas from there. And I always just record them on my phone when I'm having the idea or something strikes me. And then periodically I will go into my audio files and I will transcribe those ideas. And, you know, many of them are direct, but some of them, and some of them are just the barest stub of an idea. And others are real, you know, concepts that can be turned into books or story uh, or short stories. Um, So I gather all of those and I have a lot of faith in the subconscious to uh, transform ideas and connect ideas that we don't, uh, that we can't kind of massage or sculpt or um, prune into something uh, just by going at them head on. Um, So I'm going to give you an example. So for instance, I recently sold a graphic novel. The idea for that came because uh, we were approached by a studio that had the rights to a particular story. And I thought, boy, I don't want to write that. But ooh, I just got this sudden lightning bolt idea um, that came out of nowhere. And that was really just brought on by this conversation and thinking about a property I'd never thought of before. That was a sort of instant concept (laughs) and sort of an instant story that I could see playing out beginning, middle and end in my head. Even though that was a sort of full-born idea, then I had to sit down. And what I always do, no matter where the idea comes from, and and then, okay, I'm going to backtrack for a second. Second type of idea, I recently pitched a new novel. That novel has probably three different ideas that I had been playing with and um, dabbling in for years, but that I didn't know, but I couldn't see the story attached to them. And then they, instead of being one of those ideas that then became developed, it really was an amalgamation of those ideas that came together. And I thought, oh, of course, this is the place that I was headed. Now with both of these ideas, even though one was slow burn and the other was instant fire, I then sit down And I try to express that idea in a single sentence or two. And people who are involved in screenwriting or writing will recognize this idea as the log line. This is your elevator pitch. My theory is that if you can't tell that story 
in a couple of sentences, that's your first proof of concept. If you can't, then you don't actually know what you're dealing with. And it doesn't matter how much you bash your head against the wall. It needs to sit for a little bit longer. Oh, that's, that's right in line. I find with, with how a lot of creatives work, but it's funny to me. It's, it's interesting, not funny. It's interesting to me that you use um, sort of both of these sort of long-term, you know, crockpot <laughs> ideas. And then you're also getting these short, short burst inspirational moments, because I often find that creatives will work in one way or the other. And so I love that you're bringing them both together and allowing them to, to play. And I'm, I'm even wondering, as I'm saying this out loud, is this capturing of inspiration, something that you were doing before you started writing, or is it something that you either developed naturally or you knew you had to develop once you really got into your writing practice? Um, it's something I've been doing since I was a kid. And I think that anybody yeah. who's creative recognizes this. We walk around with little journals. We, you know, talk into our phones, whatever the tech is of the time, you know, we are, I think if we're storytellers or creative in any way, this is something that we know can be fleeting. And my experience has been, if you don't track it, it's gone. It will go in the matter of seconds. And then I cannot bloody remember what I was thinking was so brilliant. <laughs> and I'll also record things thinking I've had a brilliant idea. And then I will come back to it and be like, boy, is that not great? Um, which is fine. <laughs> it doesn't have to be great. Yeah. If all the ideas were great, you'd, you know, we would probably be overwhelmed uh, with, with how many things we wanted to do or write. Um, I guess there's two things I want to address. Um, one is I can actually give concrete examples. It's hard to talk about future projects because I'm not allowed to talk about them yet, but I can look back on past projects and I can point directly to the way this is kind of inspiration works. One is um, I was listening to a podcast called Stuff You Missed in History and they were talking about, I can't remember uh, the name of this guy, but he was a historical figure who essentially had a condition where he could not get full. He would eat and eat and eat and eat and he could not get full. And it was a fairly grotesque and disturbing story. Um, and because he he was a, just an incredibly tragic character who was sometimes the punchline of jokes and so forth. But he he had this condition and um, that had then passed into folklore. And I thought that is really painful and poignant. And what I ended up writing was a story within a story in a book of dark fairy tales I did called The Language of Thorns. And it's one of the stories that this girl tells in sort of Shahrazad fashion to this beast that um, has told her he, he only wants to hear true stories. And, um, and she essentially tells this tale of this boy who has this emptiness inside him that he can't fill. And it becomes a metaphor for depression as opposed to, um, you know, what, what the original story is about. So that is an example of um, a very specific moment of inspiration. A, a different way that that operates is when I got the idea for Six of Crows, I can point to the moment where all of these ideas came together. I was driving down the street and I saw a billboard for the movie Monuments Men with George Clooney and Matt Damon. And I thought, boy, I have no interest in seeing that. But I really <laughs> want to rewatch Ocean's Eleven, which I think is a near perfect film. And I thought, oh, my God, I want to write a magical heist. Now, 
what was interesting about this was, okay, that's a bare bones idea. But then I had all of these characters, this character named Dirty Hands, who I thought about writing a short story for, um, these characters, this um, Druzkala, um, who's a witch hunter, and the Grisha that he would then have to team up with, who I thought, oh, I'll, I'll write a short story for them at some point. But no, 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 I'm going to bring all of these characters who had been cooking in the back of my head together. And I'm going to force them to go on this mission together and try to pull off this impossible heights. So that, you know, inspiration is not something that e is easily put a finger on, but those are two examples of kind of the way that can work. And the only thing I would say to writers or creative people out there is that there's danger in the romance of the big idea. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Absolutely. Some big magic, well, <laughs> big magic. Well, there's, but there's danger in that, right? Because great, yeah. you've had this idea. Fantastic. So what? The process of writing a book is not one of falling in love. It's one of staying in love. It is, you fall in love with the original idea, but then that idea is not going to be enough to sustain you. You are going to need daily inspiration to keep the momentum of momentum of that story going. And the best stories ask you questions and they continue to ask you questions. And those questions should be exciting for you to answer. And there will be a lot of problem solving that goes into the creation of a novel. So the idea that somehow this one idea is gonna be this idea that is so sexy and brilliant and incredible that it's going to sustain you through the novel, I think is a huge myth. Yeah. I find the same to be true too, for, you know, if your work of creation is your business, all of those things that you just said apply a hundred percent, right? There, it's not just this big idea. There is this, um, daily need and not even big idea, but that moment of like, of romance with whatever it is that you're doing. It's not just one. It has to be a little bit every day for you to get there. I love all of that. Um, I have sort of two follow-up questions around inspiration. One quick and easy, I think, what's your favorite podcast right now? Oh my God. Um, okay. I love criminal, which is it's true crime, but it's very, it's not like a, you know, like serial killers or what all it's, it's a really interesting take on, uh, different stories and it's hosted by, um, a woman named Phoebe Judge, who's just amazing. Um, I also absolutely love Gastropod, which is a podcast about nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that is a favorite of mine as well. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. And then my next one is really back to inspiration. And I'm wondering if you have a process for revisiting your inspiration. Are you sitting down every couple of weeks and going back through no. all of your voice notes? Are you just sitting down whenever it's time to create something? What does it look like to actually revisit what it is that you've captured? If I'm so I will candidly say that I don't have a lot of cause to go back to um, idea inspiration unless I am approaching a short story or a short story opportunity, um, or if I'm really stuck, then I will go back into my voice notes. I also, when I'm working on a project, uh, a, a book, I will end up getting ideas for how to solve problems or particular scenes or bits of dialogue. Those I absolutely will go back into and access. 
Um, I'm currently working on the sequel to Ninth House, which is very research heavy. And so I, of course, went back into not only my research notes, but ideas I've had over the past year while I was working on my other Grishaverse book, uh, Rule of Wolves, when I was working on that, as opposed to working on the sequel, I would still get ideas or um, be find stuff, you know, through websites, all of my Google alerts, weird archaeology things, occult stuff. And so I'll go in and dig into those to see if there's anything that I really want to bring into the book. Whether you're hiring your first or 50th employee, there's no reason to be doing it like a dinosaur. Streamline your systems and make hiring something that feels like moving forward, not a total slog. Gusto makes payroll easy, and it offers flexible benefits, simple onboarding, and so much more. It's fast and effective, giving you the chance to get back to being the boss you're here to be. Sign up and get three months free once you run your first payroll when you go to gusto.com slash being boss. That's gusto.com slash being boss. Then let's move beyond inspiration and into the actual act of writing. I would love to hear from you what that process for you looks like. Do you have any routines or rituals that you use to, you know, sort of sit down and get yourself in the headspace? And for those of us who are a little deeper into the nerdydom, what tools are you actually using to write and uh, put together um, your works? Okay. So, um, I don't have a lot of rituals. I try to keep myself as flexible as possible because you never know, um, when you're, you know, when you, when you're writing to deadline, you, you are not really allowed to kind of be precious about the process. But when I embark on any new project, I have to have a new notebook that is dedicated to that project. Um, I also, uh, always need to have headphones so that I can be listening to music. My go-to is Ludovico Einaudi. He's my favorite composer. And um, I usually find I have a track or two of his that um, that become associated for me with, um, with a given book. So for instance, um, there's a piece called Walk that what I listened to just again and again on loop when I was writing Ninth House. Um, there's a piece called uh, Time Lapse that was my Six of Crows piece. Um, so those are, so I need music and I need my laptop and I need my notebook. Um, and then I use both Scrivener and Microsoft Word. So when I initially sit down with an idea, I will write in a uh, in Word in a Word document, and I will come up with what is commonly known as a beat sheet. And I and that is basically for me, it's twelve beats. Some people write to fifteen, but it's twelve moments in the story, and that's a single page. Only when I'm done with that will I start to move over to Scrivener, and I find Scrivener indispensable, particularly because my books have gotten uh, a little weirder and more complex as I've written. So Shadow and Bone, the trilogy is written in first person POV. It's quite linear. Six of Crows has um, five main POVs in the first book and six main POVs in the second book and has heists and flashbacks and all kinds of things. So I really don't think I could have written that without Scrivener or I don't know what. I probably would have had you know, some kind of beautiful setup with uh, red string and index cards. But that's what I use. I I use voting um, to to assign in the outline 
uh, mode of Scrivener. Um, and then that is sort of where I remain until it's really time to start um, revising. And then I will move everything over into a Word document to read through. And then once it goes to my editor and she comes back, back with notes or he comes back with notes, I will then uh, use a kind of chapter map, uh, which is essentially one word description of every chapter. And I will think through, revisualize what needs to happen um, in every chapter in order for me to accomplish what I want to accomplish. And then I will usually put the book back into Scrivener, which sounds onerous, but also means you really have a grasp on where everything is. Oh, and I also say, I don't use chapter titles until uh, chapter numbers until really late in the process. For me, chapters are short descriptions of scenes. So there's a line in that outline that tells me where I am because I want to be able to toggle between scenes as easily as possible and keep track of where I am. Um, again, as my books have become more complex, and I'm dealing with multiple timelines and multiple points of view, I, I need it to be as readily accessible to my brain as possible. So that, uh, that is how I work. And then again, it will all get dumped into a Word document before it goes to my editor again. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> <It's really> not- <laughs> no, that's amazing though. I mean, it just, it goes to show that sort of, you know, everyone has their own process and not everything is super linear and tied up and like all of these things, you, you use the tools that work for you and the phases of the projects where you are. And, you know, you, you do the work, right? You do the work that you need to produce the thing in the way that you need to produce it. And I, I appreciate you sharing that with us because I think it, I think it illustrates that point really beautifully that you use what you have access to, um, and you do it in the way that you just need to do it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I love too. it. I think every book and every project requires something a little bit different. And it can be easy to let your process write at five so that you think this is the way I do things. This is the way I've always done things. And that is very comforting, right? Taking on a novel or book of short stories or a big project is daunting. And so what you're really trying to do is make it manageable for yourself so that you don't get overwhelmed. And I find this process helps me to not get overwhelmed. But my process with almost every Grisha first book has been to just charge through that first draft. I don't look back. I don't reread. I get this messy monster onto the page, and then I go back and let myself engage the critical brain as opposed to the drafting brain and start to think about more analytically about what the story is going to be. But with Night House, there's so much lore. And it is, and there's so many mysteries. They are fundamentally murder mystery novels. And because of that, I need to reread. I don't have the same process with those books. I will go back and I will reread the first act, the second act. And with these books, because I've been, um, I have a very different life now than I had when I started writing. And even then in my first probably five books where my focus was got to be entirely my novels and then promotion for whatever book was happening. Um, now I have production meetings and zoom calls constantly. It is rare that I have a day that is free from that or where I'm not, uh, there aren't a considerable number of emails for me to reply to. So finding flow has been a lot more difficult. And because I'm working with a new editor on this sequel, I turned in the first hundred pages. Then I turned in the second hundred pages. And my hope is that 
you know, by the end of the next two months, I'm going to have another 200 pages to turn into her that will bring us to the end of the book. But that is a very different process than any other novel that I've written. How are you feeling about this adjusted process, right? You just sort of mentioned the fact that you don't have the time to dedicate to writing because your obligations and responsibilities have grown so much as, as your work has become, you know, more sort of popular and mainstream and grown legs and gone to do other things. <laughs> um, how are you, how are you reckoning with this shifting of time frame? And, and I, what the question I want to ask is, uh, how do you feel about, or do you still feel like you are doing work that you enjoy? Oh man, that is a mixed bag. I mean, the short answer <laughs> is I don't. I, the short answer is I don't like it. I don't like it. I didn't. Yeah. I, I'm not. I don't have a kind of brain that multitasks uh, well. I like my my greatest joy is to be deep into a book and to find flow with it and. Uh, and to sort of leave the sense of struggle behind and really be engaging with it. And that is incredibly hard to do um, when you are constantly being asked to engage different parts of your brain. One of the pieces of advice I give to new writers is always get offline. And that's not just because social media is a distraction or it's bad for your mental health. It's because social media almost consistently asks you to engage a critical part of your brain, the editorial brain, as opposed to the free open dra drafting brain, excuse me, the free open drafting brain. And it is very hard to be creative when those critical, um, those critical parts of your brain are being engaged. So I don't love it. I don't like it. I find it tiresome. I hate Zoom calls. I hate meetings. Uh, one of the great joys of my life is having a career where I don't have to talk to people all the time because I don't really like people. I am an introvert bordering on a misanthrope. And I love to be in isolation. I love to just be with my work. Um, that is sort of heaven for me. That said, I got very lucky because a lot of the people who are involved in the adaptation of my work, um, it, both with Ninth House and with Shadow and Bone, are people I genuinely like. And so a lot of those people are people I would, uh, that I enjoy talking with, who I can find inspiration in, and who also I'm comfortable handing the process off to at certain points. And so now with Shadow and Bone, you know, we've finished casting for the second season. We've gone through some of the basic stuff with um, costumes, production, locations, um, you know, the nitty gritty of props and weapons. And so while I'll keep one eye on that, I'm definitely stepping back, stepping back from it because it really doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to the writers, the crew and the cast. With Ninth House, we're in a different stage of development. And I will say that for me, working on that has actually been a big inspiration for the second book because it's helped me to stay engaged with that world and excited about that world when there are so many distractions. Yeah, I feel like you, well, one, thank you for that openness because I, as you were explaining that process and I, I, I know creatives, right? <laughs> we like to be in our holes. We like to be creating our work. Um, and that, that's one of the things that comes with, you know, I don't want to say 
popularity, because that's not what I mean, but just whenever what you do gains such legs that it is able to do so much responsibilities and, and our involvement in those things changes. And I, I know a lot of creatives really struggle with, with that sort of next step of your work, doing what you want it to do. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I it's a process, right? It's a process of, of stepping in and stepping back and, you know, giving, but also, um, doing what you need to sort of receive what you need to, to continue creating. So it sounds like, it sounds like, you know, what the steps are to, to get you in that space, but also I feel you. <laughs> I totally yeah, feel that's you. Not, look, our job at the beginning of our careers, um, when we are, when we are not, when we are aspiring, let's call it that. Our culture does not care about aspiring artists. It doesn't care what your aspirations are or what your interests are. And we see that in the way that we talk about artists, right? When you meet somebody at a party and they say, oh, I'm a writer. You don't say, oh, what kind of stories do you like? What did you grow up reading? What do you say is, oh, have you published anything that I would have read? When you meet an actor, you don't say, oh, what, what's your dream? Role? You say, oh, have you been anything that I would have seen? Okay, we reward success. We don't have an interest in aspiring artists, which is a shame because that's when artists need our support the most. But your job at that beginning stage of your career is to nurture your art and to nurture the creativity that you have and the inspiration that you have and protect it and to make art when nobody gives a damn about you and nobody gives a damn about your work. And you need to nurture that because that same muscle is what is going to allow you to continue working when shit gets really loud. And you are once again going to be asked to shut out other voices and other critique and continue to create. So there's a through line there between the beginning of art and then the commercialization of art. Right. There is this, you have to learn that skill in the beginning because it's something like it's a practice, right? We talk about our creative practice or creative process, the process is we have to practice our process, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And make it work for ourselves. That's, that's beautiful. I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing that insight. Um, then I think the next sort of natural question is what does it feel like for you to release work into the world, especially knowing now what sort of responsibilities can come with creating additional work. A lot of times creatives in our crowd, and I think maybe even in general, you create something and there's this um, one fear of letting it into the world mm -hmm. um, or two, this, um, this needing to like hold on to it once it's supposed to have gone beyond you. I'm wondering what your process for this is like, especially handing your work off to whole production teams to more or less go do with it what they will. Um, what is that like for you? And what is your process for letting things go if you need one? I mean, all I can offer is trust your partners, right? Like any active adaptation, unless you are at the very top, right? Unless you are a Stephen King or a J.K. Rowling, you're not going to get a lot of influence on adaptation or in these partnerships. And so you choose your partners with, with as much care as you can. And then you roll the dice. And I quite frankly got lucky. I got a good vibe of Eric Heiser when I met him. He's the showrunner for Shadow and Bone. And I felt like I could trust him. And I had to go with my gut. 
And as it turned out, my gut was basically right. I'm not going to say we haven't bumped heads. Of course we have. And we've had some very heated conversations. But that is the nature (laughs) of adaptation. And what you want is somebody who respects you enough to have that conversation, as opposed to just saying, I'm shutting the door. I'm locking you out of this, which can absolutely happen. And I've seen it happen with some of my friends. And it is horrific. It's as if you have built a house and furnished it and filled it with everything you love. And then somebody locks the door and leaves you standing on the porch and your hands are on the glass, right? So that's that the risk is incredibly high. And there are some writers who simply will not option their work because they're not interested in that. And I I respect that. For me, the risk is worth it because your work then comes to the attention of so many people who never would have heard of it. And the fact is that the reach of television and film is just so much wider than than anything that that usually goes along with the the publicity for books or the marketing of books. So, you know, when it came to Ninth House, I trusted my gut as well. And so far that has been um, very comfortable and has been borne out in in our interactions. But you just don't know what you're getting into. You So you choose your partners wisely and then you trust them and you hope that they will, that you will be friends at the end of the process and still respect each other at the end of the process. But it is harrowing. And I shed many tears too, uh, in, in moments of frustration and, uh, feeling unheard or frustrated in, in, in this process. And it would be silly to pretend that you can get through this without that. You just can't. It's too close. <clears throat> and with the Grishaverse, you know, I've, <laughs> this is the bulk of my life, right? This is the, the huge amount of my uh, life's work has been within this particular universe. So it has been um, frightening to me to, to put that into somebody else's hands. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful stuff. And again, it's something that I know so many creatives deal with, but I love that. I love what you're saying about just, I mean, trusting the process, right? We kind of preach that around here anyway, but also <laughs> you just have to trust the process trust the and process, learn along the way. Trust your partners. If you don't trust them, don't do it. Say no, walk <laughs> away from it. And it's terrifying to walk away from when we were out with six of pros, we got a ton of offers and interest in it. And I don't say that to, you know, butter my own parsnips. But we had a property that was easy to pitch and easy to adapt, unlike Shadow and Bone, right? Shadow and Bone is a little more complicated, doesn't have an easy elevator pitch. Six of Crows is easy, right? It's a high street magic. It's Ocean's Eleven meets Game of Thrones. Easy peasy. And so we had a lot of meetings with a lot of people. And I would come out of these meetings and I would say to my producing partner, Puya, I would say, I this doesn't feel right. I said, if it doesn't feel right, we're not doing it. This is too, we, we believe in this story too much to just hand it over to somebody. And we waited. And I remember saying to him, I'm scared that the window is going to close. You know, you say no enough times, maybe nobody else is going to ask you to dance. Well, I was wrong. We were waiting for the right partner. But that is a terrifying terrifying process. And either you believe in the story and believe in finding that person and believe in finding someone who you're going to be able to compromise with because adaptation and protecting your work is not about protecting every part of it. It's about deciding where adaptation can actually make the work better or more interesting or something different and where it has to stay the same to retain the soul and heart of the work. So, but you know, I, 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 you give a lot of interviews when you, when you have a show that's going to be on TV and you, you say, you know, oh, and it's just that everything's is sunshine and roses. Of 
course it's not sunshine and roses. It's difficult. And it makes you mad too, because you know this stuff better than anybody else. But you have to decide personally as what, you know, when you give away the rights to something, how much, how much of this can you withstand? How much of it can you bear? And, uh, and how much do you want to simply walk away and say, do what you're going to do. Right. Paired with, paired with understanding the benefit of, of doing the hard work. Yes. Love it. Oh, I love it. Lee, this has been such a treat to chat with you. I would love for you to share with our audience where it is they can find more about you and your work. Oh, um, well, you can just go to my website, leebardugo.com. And uh, there's plenty of information about all of my books and where to find me on social media. I have been on social media hiatus for the last few months, and I intend to stay that way for a while. Yeah. Nice. Nice move. And then I have one final question for you. This is always the fun surprise. Oh boy. I would love to know from you what right now is making you feel most boss. My new project. I have a little, a little book that I'm working on that I just turned in a proposal in that I've been doing research on. And it is always gratifying when you've been writing in series to think, oh, I have something completely new and exciting that I want to do. And those new ideas, you know, the graphic novel, there's a screenplay that I'm working on. But I think particularly this novel has made me feel um, really excited again about what I'm doing and reminded me you know, why I why I went into this in the first place. So that makes me feel pretty hyped. Nice. There's nothing like putting a creative in their place and letting them create. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because I'm like, oh, the romance of the big idea. But the truth is you do fall in love. You do fall in love with an idea. And it is, especially in those early stages, it really is moonlight and martinis. And it is just the best feeling. So hold on to that. Yeah. Perfect. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much, Lee, for coming to hang out with me. This has been an absolute treat. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the great questions and and good luck to everybody out there, all of your listeners who are working and and trying to make art in a world that often doesn't care about art. Um, I, I wish you all the best. Listen, boss, whether you're hiring your first or your 50th employee, I know that running payroll, calculating taxes, deductions, compliance is not easy. That is, of course, unless you have Gusto. Gusto is a simple online payroll and benefits platform for small businesses like you and like me, because I use it too. Gusto automatically files your payroll taxes and directly deposits your team's pay. Plus, you can easily offer all kinds of benefits, including 401ks, health insurance, workers comp, and more. It's the kind of tool that not only makes you a good boss, but a good boss, if you get what I'm saying. Sign up now and get three months free after you run your first payroll when you go to gusto.com slash being boss. That's gusto.com slash being boss. Now, until next time, do the work, be boss.